So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We're looking at 29 through 34. It's an amazing section of the Bible, all about the resurrection. As I've said a couple of times, like, like much of the New Testament, this was written because people had some really bad ideas, and they were talking to other people about their bad ideas. And uh, Paul the Apostle heard about it and wrote to correct the bad thinking. He's really very alarmed uh, about this bad thinking. What was this particular bad thinking? It was that, you know, it doesn't really matter if Jesus actually rose from the dead or not. You know, we still like getting together and we have a great time and it's kind of a social club and, you know, we can drink coffee together and have, they probably had some sort of Greek donut. We must have had something, you know. Uh, <laughs> and so, the, you know, the faith is just sort of a social activity and, you know, if you pull the curtain back, there's a, you know, paranoid, funny man trying to pull the strings and fool everybody. Sort of a big myth. You know, in other words, people were all, and by the way, I know this may not be astounding to you, but it's astounding to me. This literal thinking, oh, it doesn't, I don't think Jesus, there probably is really no resurrection from the dead. I mean, can you actually believe that once a person dies, he comes back to life? No, I can't really believe that. Um, that was just, this is like 20 to 25 years after Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, one of Paul's points in this passage is, there are still people around who saw him after, after he died, he was clearly dead, and he rose from the dead. You can go interview them, you can talk to them. Um, you know, it's just astounding how quickly, uh, false teaching, bad thinking, you, you'd almost think there was an evil plan. And somebody evil promoting these ideas. Yes, absolutely true. Um, that is true. We have enemies. Uh, and we have the enemy uh, trying to divert us, trying to pollute the system, uh, trying to keep us away from the truth. So we're in the middle of this uh, long chapter, one of the longest chapters uh, in, in uh, the Bible, one of the longest. Of course, the chapters were just assigned many centuries after Paul wrote these things. But in other words, this is one really big topic that they put all together in one chapter. We're kind of in the middle of it, but we're still asking this question, does it matter if it's true? And I was just thinking the other day, you know, I, I think, wow, this is a really current topic. This is, this is what young Americans are thinking about every single day. And they've gone way beyond it to the point where truth, <laughs> there really is no truth at all, you know. Nothing really matters. Uh, is there a, was that somebody who's really hot on old popular culture? Nothing really matters. No, that was an old pop song, right? Like Queen or something. Anybody admit to knowing that song? <laughs> but for me, that's still pop culture, you know, in the 1970s or whenever that song came, came out. Um, so that's where we are. But that's where they were too, for heaven's sakes. There's nothing new under the sun. 
so we're in the same place. Uh, everything old is, is new again. Uh, how important is a, the literal resurrection? That, and that's the key here. We're talking about a literal resurrection. And we mean by that word literal that he was totally dead and he totally came back to life. Um, he walked and talked. He ate food. He cooked food for the guys uh, at the beach. And he yelled out and he could be touched. He could be hugged uh, and all those things. It's not, he wasn't a phantom. He was a human being in, in material existence. And of course, he still is. That body that was raised was taken up into heaven. They saw him go up into heaven. And, you know, marvel of marvels, heaven has human, a human being in it <laughs> right now. Uh, that is Jesus Christ. Um, and that's quite amazing. It says he's coming back again. We'll be able to see him. You'll be able, actually be able to be in sort of the same room, because a large enough room, uh, with Jesus someday. So, how important is a literal resurrection? And I think by implication, really, a little bit of digging, you have to ask this question, how important is a literally true Bible? Does it really matter? Can't we just give up on that idea and move beyond it? So that's what's being challenged uh, uh, in this whole resurrection thing. And Paul is very energetic in his defense of a literal resurrection and a literally true Bible. The Bible isn't a book of myths or strange stories. It is history. It is a representation of what actually happened. So let's dig into this a little bit. Uh, we'll read 1 Corinthians 15, 29 and following. It starts out with a real confusing little part, um, but we're not going to waste a lot of time on it, but I will talk about it. Let me read the text. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? See, that's the confusing part. I'll explain something about that in a minute. Let me finish the text up. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Uh, he's speaking metaphorically there. He's, he's risking his life. He's out on the line. He could be killed at any minute. Verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray. Father, in your kindness and grace, first of all, we just thank you that we can meet together here and we have peace and we have security. We thank you for 
our great nation, that you have blessed us uh, with this peace and security and blessings all around. We pray that we would use these advantages you have given us for your glory and use these moments of peace and security to grow and prepare uh, for the challenges that you have for us in the future. And Lord, we thank you for this text of Scripture, and we ask, please, that you would open our hearts and minds to it. And as we hear the energy of Paul, the concern, the, even the alarm, and the strong words of Paul, Lord, would we hear your voice in that? Would you challenge each of us today to wake up from our drunken stupor in those areas where we are living in such levels of denial? So, Lord, you be glorified. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for composing the perfect uh, congregation this morning. We trust you, O Lord. Give us grace. Through Jesus alone, we only can talk to you. Amen. Okay, as I said, this text kind of starts out with such a confusing thing that you might think that's the only thing we should talk about. Uh, This business of being baptized for the dead, uh, verse 29. Let me just talk about it for a minute or two. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? This is weird, and the Bible has some weird things in it. Um, It's literally true, as I already said. There were people in Corinth who, you know, From all we can tell, there's not a lot of history of this. There's not a lot of other records about this. It's nowhere else in the Bible. And it's not actually taught that we should do this in the Bible. But we have to admit, neither is it condemned here. Paul doesn't say they shouldn't be doing that. What are they doing? Well, apparently, this seems to be the scenario where a family has... uh, or, or, or friends, a group of friends, has somebody who, let's just say they've come to faith in Christ, and then they die. They get sick and die, or they have an accident. And they are very sad because, oh, they were never baptized. So let's, let's get baptized for them in their place. Uh, that seems to be what's going on here. Uh, but the underlying idea is they... They will be raised again. They are coming back to life, and it will matter at that point whether or not they're baptized. Um, Again, confusing, not endorsed, but there it is. Uh, It's a local tradition, apparently. It's local because we don't have it recorded anywhere else. We don't know. It's kind of an innovative idea. Somebody had this idea. Maybe it was almost therapeutic, like uh, at the funeral, you know. This person died, it's sad, let's be baptized for them. I don't know, I'm speculating. Uh, But uh, it's a local tradition, and this local tradition depended on this idea that the underlying idea of this is that without the resurrected body, there is no everlasting life. These people will be raised again, and they will be appreciative that they were baptized uh, in this way. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> We're not going to be distracted by something. It's like I said, this is the only place. It's not, it's not ruled out, but it's not taught that we should do this. Of course, the Mormon church has made a really big deal of this. 
that's why they're so good at uh, keeping records of what's the word genealogy, right? Um, but uh, that is not warranted by this text uh, at all because this is the only mention of it. Okay, let's look at the rest of the text. I'm just going to set that aside and not be distracted by it. Does it matter if if it's true or not? Verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So my first point is risking martyrdom. Risking martyrdom. Again, Paul's saying that it's really dangerous to be a gospel preacher. Um, people, and by the way, uh, this is written, like I said, about 53 A.D. And by roughly, say, 68, so what is that, 13, 14 years later, this will come true for Paul. He will be beheaded. Uh, the tradition says that he had his head cut off by the Romans. So he's living a risky lifestyle by preaching the gospel. And he's saying, if I didn't believe in the bodily resurrection, then I wouldn't be risking myself here. And again, the underlying idea is so important. We're going to get to this more later on in other teachings. But the underlying idea is, if there isn't a bodily resurrection, then there is no everlasting life. Uh, there isn't this idea, oh, well, I'll live on in spirit, you know, and you can, you can think of me, and I'll live in your heart, and, or I might haunt a building, or, you know, something along those lines. No. He's saying, my eternal life depends on the resurrected body. I wouldn't risk my life if I didn't believe that this body will be brought back to life. Uh, it'll be changed, it'll be improved, uh, all, you know, disease, will be forever removed and every bald man will have a full head of hair. <clears throat> I'm counting on it, Lord. <laughs> um, all the effects of sin will be removed uh, from the human body. But it's a human body. See, when God created Adam, he's 100% created. He, he's not Part of him is not like the eternal part. And part of him is the temporal, material part. No, he's 100% created. And to be a human being is to be body and, and spirit soul. You can be trichotomy or dichotomy. Tri, trichotomous says there's body, soul, and spirit, three parts. A dichotomous says there is material and immaterial, um, and I'm... I'm a cotomist. <laughs> I get nothing out of you folks. <laughs> what I mean by that is, I don't care about arguments like that. We'll find out, right? But the point of Paul is, very strongly, I'm not going to live on as a disembodied spirit. I'm going to be a human being. Fully restored into the the original 
an amazing pre-sin, pre-curse existence of, of Adam. You know, and it'll be like, wow, we're, we're meant, we live forever. It's mind-boggling, mind-boggling. Paul risked his life constantly to preach the gospel. Every day. Look at the, the language here. He's not, he's not hyperbolizing here. He says, verse 30, we are in danger every hour. I said we have enemies right at the beginning. Uh, we have serious enemies who hate us. Did they hate Jesus? You know, did, tell me the reasons they hated Jesus. It's, it's a mystery, really, on an intellectual level, because he was a good guy. <laughs> I mean, and, and he's the he's the best guy. His crimes were to help people, you know, to heal people, to teach people uh, about love and life and and sins forgiven. Uh, and, and he's the one who died for our sins. He's still hated. And Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. Irrationally, they'll just hate you. And Paul is tying himself with Jesus. So he says, hey, every hour, every hour, I am at risk. And then in verse 31, every day. So every day, every hour, he risked his life for the gospel. Now, think for a moment. If you know anything about the world, I'm sure... Almost all of you know something about the world. Is it is it like Monterey, California? <laughs> Not all places are like this. Um, I have dear friends in the great nation of India, and there are aggressive anti-Christian thoughts there, so much so that they, they burn buildings. There is some martyrdom going on. There's a lot of threats. It's in a very hostile environment. Many places, of course, need, need we speak of this. In Russia, you know, we had right after uh, the USSR collapsed, there was this sort of bright moment where things opened up. And, you know, it's closing down. It's almost closed now completely to where, uh, you, you know, it used to be right after the fall that you could, evangelicals were flowing in. They were starting Bible schools doing missionary work, and now it's getting more and more narrow, and the government that is there wants to narrow it down to only the Orthodox Church-approved faith. Um, and it's very dangerous for Christians, believers, to preach the free, beautiful gospel. Need we speak of China? You know, China is very, very dangerous for people who freely teach the gospel. I have a dear friend named Frank Tang, uh, he is from Taiwan, but his mom lives in Shanghai, and he goes to Shanghai quite frequently. She's been ill quite a bit. Um, and he says there is a state church that's approved, and they can put up a big cross, but they can't preach that Jesus is coming again. It's illegal. <laughs> They can't preach the literal Bible there. It's illegal. They'll be thrown in prison if they do that. So there's a lot of um, unregistered churches. And he spoke of one one big high-rise building uh, that has a church, I think, on the like the 16th floor and the 23rd floor. They're the same church, but if you meet in too big of a place, it draws too much attention. 
So the pastor will, you know, take the elevator to the 16th, go out and preach a sermon, take the elevator up to the next 23rd floor and preach a sermon where it's free. They're preaching the Bible openly and wonderfully, but it's very dangerous. There are hundreds and hundreds of people in prisons in China. So it's not, it's not unusual. It's not unusual uh, for Paul to say this. I, I can risk my life. Because I, I believe, Paul says, in the resurrection of the dead. You, you can't keep me down. You can kill this body and God will raise me again at, at the right time, at the end time. So I have total confidence. I'll fling myself off this you know, metaphorical cliff that seems so dangerous. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? And so Paul says, every day, every hour, I, I risk my life for the gospel. This makes no sense if we only live here and now. It makes no sense to take such a risk if we only live here and now. And of course, that's the point he's getting to. Um, this makes no sense to risk your life for a myth. Paul's out there preaching that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Uh, let's let's look at that real quickly. Turn to the book of Acts. I have a local expert here who apparently knows everything about the book of Acts. <laughs> We're kidding, Eric. But if you look at, you know, when we get to Acts 18, is where he comes into Corinth. But if you look back at, at 17, just real quickly, Um, let's look at, at some of this here. Particularly, uh, let's see here. Look at him preaching at, it's called Area, the Areopagus. It's in Athens. It's also called Mars Hill. I understand you can go visit, uh, that, it, the ruins of it. And he's preaching away a there. He's invited to come and preach there, right? And this glorious sermon, Acts 17, Acts 17. And, uh, look at, let's just cut in at the end. Let's say we walked in the last uh, 37 seconds of his, this is a part of what he preached. It says, uh, verse, verse, uh, 30. It says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Uh, that's the beauty, that's the that's the call of the gospel. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. Repent and come to Jesus. Why? Verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says this out publicly and he'd be an absolute fool to preach this when it's really a myth <laughs> to risk your life for a myth is, is stupid. And that's why that's what he's saying here in this text. No, it, this is true. This is real. Jesus was raised from the dead. The dead are raised and you too will be raised and, and judged. So let's look at the next part. So risking martyrdom. Why is this important? Paul was willing to risk being killed for it. 
That shows you how much it matters. Secondly, righteous living. This is very important in this text, and Paul really zeroes in on it, so I just invite your attention to this very careful and very strong, beautiful word. Verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Now, there's a lot of discussion of that. It could be real. Uh, the Romans did this kind of thing, right? They take Christians and release lions on them. Uh, there's some speculation that it's, it's metaphorical, meaning Paul saying, uh, the people that I argued with were really strong and dangerous kind of people in Ephesus. You might say, well, why would you say that? Well, he was a Roman citizen, and they did not typically feed the Roman citizens to the wild animals. Again, we don't know exactly what he's saying, but we, we get the point, right? He risked his life at Ephesus. It, he says, I, why would I do that if the dead are not raised? So if the dead are not raised, he says, just give up on this entire moral system. Why live righteously if I'm, when I die, I'm just going to rot away and be nothing and never have an existence again? And, and by the way, again, a huge percentage of modern people believe that. You know, I'm not even, you know, I want to say Americans, that's true, but all over the world, Primarily, this is a huge faith that when I die, nothing happens. That they even feel like death is, is an escape. As soon as I die, I'll be at peace. And the Bible has this amazing idea that that's not true. You, you do not cease to exist. And in fact, you're going to be raised and you'll be body. You'll be you for eternity. So do your best to come to Christ now to get this straightened out. But I'm, I'm cutting to the chase there, but let's look at this idea here. If there is no resurrection, then let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, and be merry. Remember the parable that Jesus told of uh, the rich man who had so much money. And his solution to so much money was not... You know, let's, let's honor Bill and Melinda Gates. It's a fantastic thing they're doing. I wish they knew God, but I'm thankful they're huge philanthropists, even if I can't say that word very well. <laughs> they're giving away tons of their wealth and blessing the poor all over the world. That's fantastic. But this guy didn't come up with that solution. He said, I gotta figure out better ways to store my wealth, right? So he tore down the barns and built bigger barns. And as he saw all of the stuff getting stored away for his amazing retirement, he said, just kick back. You know, eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, I have nothing to fear. Remember the words of Jesus? He said, you fool. Today, your soul is required of you. Today, you're going to die, and you're going to lose it all. What, what a terrible tragedy. That's not human value. Now, we're, we're, we're trying to convince you, we are, the Word of God is trying to convince you to live for beautiful, lasting, rewarding values. Now, this is, this is the real retirement plan that is awesome and eternal, cannot be taken away. Let's look at this phrase though, this eat, drink, and be merry. 
It's really kind of cool. Um, it comes from Scripture. Let's look at this Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22. Uh, Isaiah is a fantastic book. We should study sometime that in Sunday school. <laughs> Our Sunday school class just spent like two years finishing it up. Uh, but this is actually early in the history and is recording when Assyria was harassing. Assyria came and took over the north and harassed the south as well. And according to uh, A.T. Robertson, that's what that's the time period of this. And that's significant. So look at uh, Isaiah 22, 12 and 13. It says, um, In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning. He's saying, you people were living a sinful lifestyle. You were in rebellion against God. And he brought trouble into your life. Sin brings trouble. Sin is often its own punishment. By God's design, you know, you're miserable and you're feeling stupid and uh, disgusted and disgusting. And, and it's calling for weeping and mourning for baldness. Okay, I think that means shaving your head so you look wonderful. No, no, it's a symbol of repentance and change and wearing of sackcloth. What's he saying? God is putting you through these troubles so you'll repent. So you'll turn back to Him. Learn from the troubles that are in your life. He's not doing it so that you're increasingly only miserable. His goal is your joy, your fulfillment, to turn you away from the stuff that is vapid and empty. So look at verse 13. And behold... Joy and gladness. You know, you're living in such denial that when you start to suffer, you just pour on the party a little harder. You drink a little more. He says this, Behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. So the context there is they're suffering because of their sin. God wants them to turn to him and repent and come and be forgiven and live for him. But instead, they just pour on the party. They, they live in denial. They, they, you know, pour me another one type of attitude. I don't want to face reality. I want to eat and drink for tomorrow I die. Now here's the interesting thing about this. That's, so that's in Isaiah, written somewhere like 700 B.C. Um, also though, in secular culture, uh, there, in the Greek culture, there's this fellow they called Sardinopolis, Sardinopolis, a name I would not recommend for any of your children. <laughs> Sardinopoulos, uh, in the Greek culture, he was considered to be the last Assyrian king. Assyrian king. And he was the, the symbol of absolute outrageous living. I, I, and in the Romantic era of art, so here's an art piece depicting 
Sardanopolis. This was the only clean one I could find. Um, he, here's a little bit about him. He, uh, Itsy, let's see. Yeah, here it is. Sardanopolis. Supposed to have lived in the 7th century BC, so about the time Isaiah was written, interestingly enough, he's portrayed as a decadent figure who spends his life in self-indulgence and dies in an orgy of destruction. I don't know if this plugs in exactly, but it's not quite the same because he's incredibly wealthy. Uh, he's, and he's the king of Assyria, which means that I'm the king of the hill. Uh, for a while, right? They would be destroyed. But, uh, you know, one of the big tragedies in the United States of America right now is this opium uh, epidemic where, and you probably heard this, but last year, 2016, more Americans died from opium overdose than died in the uh, Vietnam War. More than, so that's something like 54, 55, thousand Americans. More than auto accidents. I mean, it's a terrible tragedy. Uh, and it's it's about this sort of language, this an orgy of destruction, self-indulgence. I mean, and, and they need help. <laughs> They're addicted, <laughs> um, for sure, and they need intervention. But it's kind of the same thing. In other words, uh, when I feel bad, I'm just going to get high again and not not come to repentance, not work, do the very, very difficult work of change and growth and live for God. I'm just going to go down the tube. And, you know, that's Satan's destruction. He loves deceiving people and, and saying things like, you, you can't be forgiven. And that's a, that's a lie, a satanic lie. Jesus died. You don't doubt the value of the blood of Christ. You know? He's the perfect Lamb of God. He, his blood is the atoning sacrifice. Hallelujah. You know, you know the Bible calls it, it it's the uh, satisfaction of the wrath of God. And you can receive this freely, you know. Don't be deceived into thinking, no, I can never have that. Anyway, so this uh, Sardanopolis, it's kind of... A little bit mythological, but it, he became a symbol of, of this orgy of destruction. And the legendary decadence of Sardanapalus later became a theme in literature and art, especially in the Romantic era, which you can barely see, but that's okay. So it, it, what's interesting, too, is, so Paul is quoting this, probably leaning heavily on Isaiah 22, but not far from his home in Tarsus, Paul of Tarsus, uh, A.T. Robertson, again, I lean on A.T., I, I couldn't uh, verify this otherwise, but not far from Tarsus is a city called Anciale, uh, Anciale and it has a statue of this guy, Sardanapalus, there, with the inscription, eat, Drink, enjoy yourself. The rest is nothing. And this, this is a guy who lived uh, in, you know, 700 B.C. But it sounds exactly like what you'd hear in sort of your typical rap song that might be written tomorrow, right? I mean, sort of a, a nihilism is a philosophical term for that. 
which nothing really matters. Just And it's so tragic. This is not what God created you to be, created human beings to, to be. This was the motto of the Epicureans, a, a Greek uh, philosophical movement. Okay. Uh, next, also, let me read the text. This is also cool. Another uh, popular culture reference in, in our text. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, sorry, I lost my place. There we go. Next page. This, this series here. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That's an interesting quote from Menander, not a person I know very well, but he lived about 300 BC. But in uh, that his era, he was hugely popular. He wrote more than 100 plays. A lot of them were comedies. Uh, I get the impression like he wrote, wrote for Saturday Night Live type of thing. Hugely popular, very influential. And yet he realized this, bad company ruins good morals. And again, I think this is a 70s reference because there was a rock and roll group called Bad Company. <laughs> okay. The 70s didn't happen. Leave them alone, right? Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, this, this is so profound, though. You know, Forget my corny joke and reference to the 70s. I say that to draw attention to it, actually, not to distract from it. Because what he's saying is, the more you hang around with people who say, oh, come on. That stuff is all a myth. That's a fairy tale. You know, I'd rather believe that there is no God and that this all happened by some unbelievable quadruple billion, you know, year freakish accident. That's how we all got here. There is no God. There's no creator. There's no intelligence behind all of this intelligent design that we see. Uh, there is the more you hang around with those people, the more time you spend with them, it will ruin. And the word is ethics, your your ethos, your your morals. It will ruin your morals because what you believe matters. If you remove the foundation, if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe that He could raise the dead, and He will raise the dead that he's omnipotent and all-powerful, then live any way you want. That's what he's saying. So let's, let's work this out. Uh, resurrection is real, and ethics are real. How we live really matters. And again, the text of Scripture that I'm making all this on is, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So I put it this way. We must live as if there is a tomorrow. Yeah. Eat, drink, and be merry. Nothing else matters. That's saying there is no tomorrow. But there, for human beings, there is a tomorrow. You will never get rid of tomorrow. You will never. It's there. It's always there. Secondly, we must resist our willingness to be deceived. Notice that command in verse 33. Do not be deceived. Well, wait a minute. I thought deception meant that I was, like, fooled. I used to... I, I had an amazing cousin who died 
while back, and I was thinking of fond memories of him. We used to go up to Hume Lake. They had, they had a house up there. And one summer, Hume Lake was just infested with frogs. And uh, he figured out this way. You, you go out on a little boat, and you have a fishing line, and you put a little piece of red yarn on that fishing line on a hook. And you just swing it over their head, and they, they go for it. They, it's like they can't help themselves. So we had frog legs galore. It was so wonderful. Uh, and that frog is deceived, right? Like, did he really have freedom? I mean, do frogs have freedom? You know, I, I have no idea. That's way too deep for me. <laughs> but I want to think, and this text implies, dear friend, that when you're deceived, you have a willingness to be deceived. You want to be deceived. That, that fishing line is coming by. Oh, there's something red on that line. <laughs> it's obviously an insect. <laughs> it's obviously my lunch. I'm going to eat it with my very long tongue. No, you are saying, please deceive me. Here I am. <laughs> oh, me, me, me. <laughs> I'm ready to be deceived, right? That may be overstating the case, but that's the way we are. So that's, that's the only way to make sense of this command. Do not be deceived. You know, think, think. Bad company ruins good morals. If, who are you listening to? Psalm 1 says, don't sit in the council of the uh, skeptical bad company. We must rise above peer pressure. And then we must break through denial. I think that's what this denial is. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. We've got to break through denial. You cannot overcome sin unless you repent of sin. Honestly, you can't, we can't overcome sin unless we call it what it is. If you say, oh, well, it's, you know, my upbringing or my, my you know, my genetics, I just can't help myself. Um, that's not what repentance is. <laughs> that's not confession. Confession is, I sinned. That's the, it's the most freeing, glorious thing that we can be convinced of. That I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel. I'm not sick. I'm not a slave of my genetics. I don't need to go to CVS and get a little pill to repent of this stuff. Uh, I need to repent of the sin and admit I'm a sinner. And I'm saying, deceive me. Because denial is so much easier than this painful repentance. Does the resurrection matter? Yeah, he says it's the basis of all of this. Without it, we have nothing. Uh, we must not add sin to sin. Yeah. That's what he's saying there in the next one. And do not go on sinning. Now, once we sin, <laughs> it's so you know you ring the bell once, it's so easy to ring it again. Right? And and it, you have every excuse, well I already rang it, I might as well ring it again. Um, add sin to sin, you know, and, and stop it. No. That's the idea of repentance. Don't add sin to sin. In other words, a good rationale for sinning is not that I already sinned once. No, each one is, each time, it's wrong. And we have to overcome that by God's grace, uh, by pleading with him 
her mercy. So finally our text ends with this, and we have uh, five minutes to cover this. Look at, look at this. This is so amazing. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to Christians. And this is what he said. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame, church. There, there are people in the church who actually have no knowledge of God. They don't even know who God is. And some of them are standing behind the pulpit. And I hope it's not me. Uh, I say this to your shame. You have no knowledge of God. You don't even know God. Why, why is that? Because it is entirely possible for Christians to have no knowledge of God. They're, they're in it for some kind of social thing or whatever. Everybody, everybody goes to church. Not so much in our culture, but in some areas. Uh, what don't they know? They don't know that he's omnipotent. Omnipotent, Latin word meaning all-powerful. They denied his power. I think it really starts with the whole creation and evolution issue. That's where the Bible seems to make it start. He is, he is the creator. Uh, for example, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. I heard our kids uh, Rebecca, what was that that verse you guys were talking about? Without him, nothing was created. That's uh, is that First John, right? At the beginning, First John. Is it? Oh, that that's. I'm, no, that's okay. I shouldn't call you on the middle. Of the My bad. <laughs> I think I'm talking about maybe John one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what I'm talking about. This is this is talking about Jesus Christ. We sang a song that said this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. It's very emphatic. This is an omnipotent God. He makes stuff, and nothing was made without His personal attention. So when we say that it happened through a long billion-year process, we're insulting Him personally. You know, this didn't happen by accident. You know, I made this thing. <laughs> That's my creativity right there. That took a lot of intelligence to make that thing. It didn't happen by freakish accident. So he's omnipotent, and it applies to the resurrection, too. He's all-powerful. He is the one working his plan. They don't know God. They don't know this. And let's close with this. This is on our webpage, a couple of verses. Hosea 6. We haven't heard from Hosea in a very long time. Uh, in fact, I can't even find it. He, he's in the Minor Prophets, the 12 last books of the Bible. Let's see, Hosea, Joel, Amos. So he's Hosea, Joel, Amos. If you have a Bible, turn there to Hosea, Minor Prophet. And we close with this thought. He says this. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Now, if he can bring 
us down, he's the only one that can bring us up. And this is a reference to the resurrection. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. And here's verse 3. This is on our webpage. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. And that's our, our challenge, is to know God. To know him more and to know him more and to know him more. Let us press on to know him. He will come. It says, his going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. He will come. He will bless us. And our psalm said this, in Judah, God is known. You have to be people who know God, who trust him, to know uh, that he is working. Uh, this was really brought home to me just this week with no names mentioned, but a friend of mine on Facebook uh, talked, talking about the Bible uh, said this. My point is that it's still just black squiggles on a page, that it takes a human mind to interpret through their own background of obviousness. He's dismissing major morality teachings of the Bible by saying, oh, it's just black squiggles on a page. Now, this is not knowing God and trusting him. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, ask the question, does it matter? And this text says it matters if it is real. And we know your word is true and trustworthy. It is not a myth. And we do pray, Lord, for strength to know you, that you would call us to yourself to know you and trust you more. And, and we know, Father, that the resurrection is true because you did it and you told us that you did it. And we look forward, oh Father, to participating in it. We pray that through Jesus Christ we will know your love and forgiveness and that we will live lives of victory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.